Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Wherever you find us, whether it's a video on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. You can also find us on major social media platforms where I give you a heads up about upcoming shows and which date and time they will be aired. If you go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, you can find links to the shows, MP3 files which you can download, or links to your favorite platform like iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and all other major sources. You can find information for upcoming and past talk show appearances as well as new book projects at MarlenePardo.com. You can also purchase books and merchandise there. And you can visit my author page on Amazon at Marlene Pardo Pelliser. Due to popular demand, I'm narrating my True Believer stories that have collected throughout the years in a new series called Supernatural Storytime. You can find links at SupernaturalStoryTime.com. If you are into classic horror, ghosts, and adventure stories, I narrate some of those at Nightshade Diary. And you can find links at NightshadeDiary.com. If you would like to read noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit the Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I do want to thank you all for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. This is the first in a series of Haunted Holy Places. Haunted Convent and Leper Hospital at Chakachakara Island in British West Indies. The History Chakachakara Island received its name by the Indians who populated the area. In 1498, Christopher Columbus named it El Caracol, which translates to the snail. Presently, it is part of the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago, and it lies in the Bocas del Dragón, or the Dragon's Mouth, only seven miles from the coast of Venezuela. It encompasses approximately 900 acres. Between the period of 1777 and 1794, Spaniards established cotton plantations on the island, as well as whaling stations. By 1797, Chacachacara came under the control of the British. During the French Revolution, emigres or creoles from Santo Domingo and the surrounding islands settled here. Coconut cocoa and sugar were also grown with the biggest sugar mills in the British Empire being located on the island. The Lepers In 1814 there was a small population of lepers who resided in the Laventil Hills to the east of the capital city of Port of Spain in Trinidad. They spent the day wandering the street and at this time there was talk by officials to establish a leper asylum on the Isla de Monos or Monkey Island However, there were too many residents living on the island and recompensing them to leave their homes made the project too costly. The situation was made more dire when in 1842, following the end of slavery, a tide of Indian immigrants who were promised five acres after five years were brought to Trinidad to satisfy the serious labor shortage, bringing a new influx of leprosy with them. Between 1842 and 1917, over 170,000 Asian Indians, Chinese, and Portuguese from Madeira were enticed into working on the island's vast plantations. These indentured laborers from India were called bound coolies. The British colonizers on Trinidad became alarmed at the growing number of lepers 
who begged on the streets of the main city, and in response the government bought an armory located at Cocorite on the coast of Trinidad and established a leper colony at the site. The disease became prevalent because unknown at the time, it was spread by sneezing, and a person could be contagious for years without displaying any symptoms. If there was suspicion that a family member was infected with leprosy, the family kept quiet, as the stigma against this disease was so powerful that just being a family member to a leper could alienate them as well. The following is a letter written by Dr. Luis de Vertul, who was the mayor of Port Spain in 1857. Leprosy is unfortunately very prevalent and of late years appears to be even on the increase. It is much to be apprehended that the malady will continue to spread and thereby entail an increasing amount of misery. An asylum was established under the government of Sir Henry G. MacLeod and is still maintained at the public expense for the reception of lepers who are not in a position to support themselves. But as it is generally left to their option to enter the asylum or not, those only who make application are admitted, and of course, lepers who prefer a mendicant life are seen going their rounds and begging, not only on the highways, but in the very streets of Port of Spain. Surely this ought not to be tolerated. The Nuns In 1868, the colonial government invited the Dominican Sisters of St. Catherine of Siena to run the Leprosarium. Fifteen Dominican sisters of Etrepagni came to take over the care of the patients. However, once there, they fought a losing battle, as many of the infected patients, which at one point numbered 300, would abscond to Port of Spain, spreading the disease in their wake. The treatment for leprosy at this time was so painful that many decided to live with the disease instead of enduring the efforts of the doctors to alleviate their symptoms. A similar effort was made to isolate lepers in Hawaii, when in January of 1866, the island of Molokai, some 50 miles from Honolulu, was made into a leprosarium. In 1869, nine of the sisters died in a yellow fever epidemic and were interred at Leperu Cemetery. Sister Marie Seslaus Wingens, one of the original 15 who contracted yellow fever, survived. However, she suffered from poor health until she died in 1897 in France. Sister Marie Augustine Cartier also survived the yellow fever outbreak that took 15 of her sisters. For the next 28 years, she devoted herself, body and soul, to the care of the lepers in Cocorite and died there in 1897. The poor sisters were dogged by misfortune. In 1871, Sister Marie Henri Reverdy arrived as a replacement. However, her health was poor already and the hardships of the place took their toll. She died in 1873 at the age of 30, only two years after serving in the Coco Wright Leprosarium. By 1893, only one of the original sisters was alive, Sister Mary Augustine. During those 25 years since she had arrived, she had only spent eight days outside the convent walls. Sister Marie Ange arrived at the Coco Wright Convent in November of 1897, and within 18 months, in June of 1899, she had died. In 1910, Sister Marie Eulalie Yvonne, who worked at the Cocorite Convent, became ill and died when she was only 45 years old. The sisters were devoted, but risk of infection from the lepers was only one of the risks. 
the back-breaking work, the heat, the insects and other illnesses prematurely claimed the lives of many of the nuns. Many of them never returned to France or lived to an old age. Chakachakara Island in 1915, an international conference determined that isolation of patients was the only way to stem the spread of leprosy. As a result, the colonial government in Trinidad made it mandatory that lepers should either be confined to their own homes or else be taken to Kokorite by force. This proved to be only a temporary solution, and the government felt that only relocation off of Trinidad was a viable option. What came to mind was the island of Chacachacare. During the 1800s, Trinidadians had established a health spa and retreat there. In 1870, a lighthouse was built, which was followed in 1887 by a stone pier and large house to be used as a sanatorium. In 1880, the Dominican Order had built St. Catherine's Church, School, and Presbytery in a bay called La Chapelle. This was part of 80 acres donated to the Catholic Church in 1842. In 1920, using funds raised by an imposed tax on the citizenry, the government built a hospital, a common refectory, a bakery, kitchen, storerooms, and patients' cottages on Coco Bay for men and Sanders Bay for women. This construction was done in secret, and between 1922 to 1926, the patients were forcibly transferred there. Once the Coco Wright buildings were empty, they were set on fire, believing that they were contaminated. The full story of the French Dominican nursing sisters who risked their lives looking after the lepers came to light only in 1993, when Marie Therese Ritu, a member of the same order, became the archivist at their holy name convent in Port of Spain. She found hidden away in an old storeroom cobweb boxes riddled with termites. Inside were the diaries of the sisters who served on Chacachacare, all written in French. Sister Marie Therese had made English translation. It's a heart-rending story of sheer determination to keep fighting a disease for which there was no cure until after the turn of the century. The Hansian Settlement In 1922, plans were made to transfer the first wave of lepers to Chacachacare, However, in order to avoid hysteria among the lepers and their families, the date of the first transfer to the island was kept secret. They chose the healthier ones to go first as they could assist in completing the buildings on the island. An entry from the nun's diary in 1922 recalled the day the leper population at the Cocorite Hospital were rounded up at 6 a.m. and escorted by policemen to the pier, where they were taken to the island by a steamer. Food, water, medical supplies had to be brought in by boat, and the inhabitants of the island had to fight off mosquito-borne malaria as well as leprosy. There was no running water or electricity. The patients cared for themselves with the help of the sisters who helped to administer painful intravenous injections. Once they could not care for themselves, they were taken to the hospital at Sunda Bay. This new leprosarium was known as the Hansian Settlement. Cursed. In 1926, on a hill overlooking Marine Bay, a new convent and chapel dedicated to Our Lady of the Rosary was built for the sisters. In a small cemetery adjacent to the convent, ten sisters were buried, many of them within a short time of arriving at Chacachacare. The first was Prioress Mother Marie, who died only after three months on the island. Two years later, 1928, Sister Joseph Agnes Ricom 
died at Chakachakar after short illness. She was 56 years old. Another sister who came with a leprous from Kokorite died at Chakachakari. Sister Mary Elizabeth Hanard felt ill shortly after arriving at the island and lived in poor health until 1933 when she died at the age of 66. A diagnosis of leprosy isolated not only the patients but their caretakers as well. In 1927, Sister Rose de Saint-Marie Vibert had already contracted leprosy. She suffered with the disease for 18 years and lived in the woman's compound at Sanders Bay instead of the convent. The disease had taken away her sight and had hideously distorted her once attractive face. Her tongue was so swollen she could barely speak. Sister Jean de Saint-Dominique Ecofier developed a skin infection which was wrongly diagnosed as Hansinian disease and she was isolated from the other sisters. For the next 13 years, Sister Jean was forced to live like a recluse. The medical doctor who had diagnosed her condition admitted years later that he had made a mistake. The skin disease was not leprosy. By this time, Sister Jean had begun to suffer from paralysis. She died in 1931 at the age of 74 after serving the lepers at Coco Wright and Chakachakari for 15 years. In 1935, Sister Anna was also diagnosed with leprosy. She moved from the convent to Sanders Bay where she lived in a cottage. Her remains were interred at the patient cemetery. A later a plaque was raised to her memory in the sister's cemetery. Another nun had dropped dead from a heart attack after walking up the hill to the convent. De Vertuel's book, Western Isles, tells us that at the death of a sister, it was customary that a steamer went round the bay of Chakachakare with its flag flying at half-mast and when passing in front of Marine Bay, blew its siren three times as a sign of sympathy with the sisters' bereavement. On July 17, 1928, a storm struck the island, and the roof of the convent was blown away, forcing the sisters to seek shelter among the patients. Instead of walking across the island, the sisters would take a launch from Marine Bay to the leper's village, and this was destroyed during the storm as well. In 1934, Sister Rosa Rollins, who was only 48 years old, died. She had been working with the lepers since Cocorite and had transferred to the island to continue to care for them. However, she was often sick and died suddenly after being admitted to the emergency room at Port of Spain Hospital. Sister Marie de Saint-Jacques Dressler arrived at Chacachacara in 1936. At this time, no dentists were willing to come to the island to attend to the patients. The medical doctor asked that two Dominican sisters be trained in dentistry. Sister Marie de Saint-Jacques volunteered to be one of them. Both had to go to Port of Spain to receive an elementary formation from a dentist. They were taught how to extract teeth and to make dentures. Sister Marie Dominique Merle cared for the lepers for 25 years and, like Sister Saint-Jacques Dressler, left in 1950. They both went to La Desirade Island, close to Guadeloupe, to continue their work of mercy at this other leprosarium. She died in Guadeloupe in 1991. Sister Dressler left La Desirade Island in 1970. Sister Christina Dillinger is one of the sisters that endured throughout the time the Dominican sisters worked with the leper colony. From Cocorite to Chacachacara, she worked with the patients until 1950. She was then assigned to the Holy Name Convent and Port of Spain where she died in 1958. Winds of Change the Morgan Cemetery for the patients was on the other side of the island by Sanders Bay. At Russ Bay, there was the doctor's house 
and at Bloomer's Bay, the nurse's quarter. The lepers on Chakachakara had many rules they had to follow. There was no such thing as visitation rights since relatives were not allowed on the island, nor could the patients leave for extenuating circumstances such as bereavement. A strict watch was kept on the main jetty to ensure that no unauthorized contact from the mainland took place. Lepers were rationed to a half gallon or eight pints of water for drinking only. All their clothes were washed in the settlement laundry. Patients weren't allowed to swim in the sea. They could bathe up to chest height. If caught in deeper water, they served two days in the Gaul on Latinta Bay. The able-bodied were compelled to work for the princely sum of 25 cents a day. In 1936, the doctor reduced this wage to 12 cents, and the lepers went on strike, and two months later got back their original wages. Some patients cultivated gardens in the wet season. As war broke out in Europe, a radio station was set up at Coco Bay, where all the inhabitants of the island could hear the events taking place around the world, reducing some of their isolation. In 1942, 1,000 U.S. and Puerto Rican Marines were stationed on Chacachacare and built barracks on the island, erecting a barbed wire fence to keep themselves separate from the leper colony. They helped the sisters by constructing a cable tram from the jetty to the convent to enable the nuns to transport supplies more easily. During the years of World War II, it became more difficult to bring food to the island. Rigid rules preventing the lepers from fishing or growing their own food relaxed. Male and female patients who had lived in separate compounds on the opposite ends of the island took advantage of the lack of oversight from the government in Trinidad, and before long, births increased, but babies were taken away from their mother and sent to orphanages in Trinidad or placed with family members. The sisters were assisted in their medical duties by paid government nurses who, for twice the normal salary, lived on the island in a two-week-on, two-week-off shift system. Understandably, the zeal of the paid nurses for the care of the lepers was not equal to that of the nuns. By 1945, new drugs were introduced, which allowed leprosy to be successfully treated. However, the process was slow and painful, and at the end of the year, the nuns chronicled the population on the island, which was a total of 338 patients, 237 males, 113 females, and 38 children. In 1946, electric generators were landed and installed with some difficulty, but they allowed patients new form of recreation in the form of movies, which were screened weekly. Another change that occurred on the island was the establishment of a Hindu temple or mandir, which was opened in 1946 for the East Indian community. The beginning of the end. By 1950, specialist surgeons were visiting the island to perform reconstructive surgery on the faces of inmates whose features had been horribly disfigured by the disease, depriving them of noses, eyelids, and lips. It was not only the dwindling number of Dominican nuns, but the government, who in an effort to eradicate leprosy, insisted that the nuns who tended the leper settlement be nurses as well. To this end, Archbishop Ryan persuaded the Mother Superior of the Sisters of Mercy in Baltimore to send six nuns who were also registered nurses to work alongside the Dominican sisters. Between 1944 to 1950, the care of the leprosarium was transferred from the aging Dominican sisters who did not have enough replacements to the Sisters of Mercy. Initially, four Sisters of Mercy from St. Joseph's Hospital in Savannah began their mission as volunteers in the leper colony. In preparation for this assignment, they had each taken a 10-day course at the National Leprosarium at Carville, Louisiana. Awaiting the sisters' arrival at Chacachacara were two other Sisters of Mercy, 
already at the island. By 1950, there were 500 patients and four additional nuns came to help those already working there. During this time, the Sisters of Mercy established a school for the children of the island. In January 1955, 399 lepers staged a revolt and wrested authority from the island establishment after a favorite administrator, Dr. Koros, was dismissed. He had been allowing some of the patients to visit the mainland against the protest of the governor. The sisters had to call the police. The reason why the Sisters of Mercy left is not clear. Maybe it was events like the leper revolt, the modernization of medical treatments, or experiencing the vicissitudes which the Dominican sisters had endured for so many years. They left in 1955. Only one of their members, Sister Mary Luigi, died and was buried at the nun's cemetery in Chacachacare. The reason for her death was not listed. However, stories are told of a fisherman who claimed to have found a white habit floating on the seas close to Chacachacare, and it was attributed to a suicide by one of the nuns due to depression. Sister Mary Luigi is believed to be one of the ghosts that haunt the island. There is not much information available as to who cared for the lepers after the Sisters of Mercy left, but it was most probably government nurses. In 1970, the World Health Organization reported on the leper serum at Chacachacare, which accommodated 248 patients. Many of the patients had come voluntarily from the surrounding islands. However, most of the lepers stayed on the mainland and went to ambulatory clinics for treatment. The total number of patients at all the clinics was 1,167, and it was roughly estimated that about 600 additional unknown cases existed. The lack of available resources was a considerable handicap in case-finding work, case follow-up, and contact tracing. The resources that were lacking were, of course, manpower. There was a dichotomy in the way the lepers were treated. There were many citizens who decried when the lepers were forcibly sent to Chacachacare Island. However, there was still an overriding fear and stigma attached to working in any field coming in contact with a leper. On July 24, 1984, the leper colony closed and the remaining patients, some of who had lived over 40 years on the island, returned to Trinidad. During the time it had been open, over 2,000 patients had lived there and died there. The Ghost Stories Today, the Chacachacara Island Leprosarium is slowly but surely being reclaimed by the jungle. The buildings are empty and vandalized, empty holes where windows and doors once stood. Patient records and other medical equipment lay strewn around the ground, left where they were last placed. The shell of the convent and chapel where the brave Dominican sisters live still stands, and the little graveyard containing the remains of nine of their order and one sister of mercy stand as a solemn reminder of the great price they paid for their unfailing devotion. Frames of hospital beds and operating tables rust in the old hospital, and the ancient house where the medical superintendents once lived at Rust Bay is now a derelict ruin. The patients' villages at Sanders and Coco Bay have vanished, succumbing to time and the weather. The patients' St. George Cemetery is now difficult to find. Unmarked graves have been reclaimed by the land. In the 1990s, the Trinidadian Coast Guard started using the old buildings as living quarters and established administrative offices and a security post. Within six months, it was abandoned due to its reputation as being haunted. Today, Chacachacara remains uninhabited, except for staff maintaining a lighthouse on the island, and the Hindu temple founded in 1945 continues to be functional with religious activities. 
the locals stay away from Chacachacara Island for two reasons. Fear of the supernatural and fear that there's still some type of leprosy germ that can infect someone who stays too long there. This demonstrates the stigma that is attached to the still feared biblical disease. The best known ghost is that of a nun who was said to have committed suicide. There are different versions of her story. In one, she falls in love with a Venezuelan sailor and once the romantic is exposed and she cannot continue to see him, she hangs herself over the chapel altar. In another version, her lover is a priest and in the third, her lover is a fisherman and she kills herself after learning she is pregnant. On Ghost Hunters International, who filmed an episode there in 2011, they spoke to a priest who told them about an American nun named Sister Mary Luigi, who was told to go to Guyana and didn't want to. She was found dead in the water and it was not verified if she had died by her own hand or had fallen into the sea and drowned. Miami Ghost Chronicles could not find any independent verification as to what happened to Sister Mary Luigi. However, on her gravestone, it shows she died January of 1946. This date corresponds to the time when 29 Sisters of Mercy from the United States went to Guyana, then the British Guiana, between 1935 and 1946 to minister. Whoever she may be, there are reports of a young nun haunting the convent, sometimes seen walking around with a lantern at night. Witnesses have also reported hearing voices, noises, and footsteps, seeing apparitions, shadows, being pushed, feeling cold spots. Another ghost is that of a man who is seen at the jetty where boats dock on the island. Boatmen talk of other spirits believed to roam the area around the patient's cemetery. One fisherman is reported as refusing ever to set foot on the shoreline, even in daylight, in case he is caught by the spirits. The paranormal investigators of Trinidad, Tobago also tell about a group of Coast Guard soldiers that felt as though they were held down in their sleep and being pushed up the stairs by an unseen hand. There's a report of a woman in white wearing lipstick in the area of the nun's cemetery. Another apparition is that of a man wearing a watch who has been seen in the doctor's house. Most people will probably think that any ghostly apparitions on the Chacachacara Island would be the nuns. However, these ladies pretty much had their spiritual life in order. That one of them might have committed suicide and it was hushed up or had some secret drama going on in her life that now holds her restless spirit trapped with the leprosarum is very possible. Remember though, at least 2,000 people suffering from leprosy came to live and die on this island during the 60-some years it served as a leper settlement. Many had to leave their families behind. Others even had to give up their newborn children. There is little of any information given about those who received treatment here, much less about what went on among those that were trapped on this island. There are probably many sounds and conversations that are caused by residual energy where so many lived year after year, regulated by rules, obligations, and vows they had taken. Were there any murders, suicides, passionate liaisons, and betrayals? Most probably there were. But living apart from the mainland, these incidents were easily hidden. And even now there is no record of the personal lives of those people who have been exiled and knew that a painful death sentence hung over their head. A ghost story. The Leper's Ghost. In the year 1896, a 13-year-old named Robert Thurston Hopkins was enduring his first term at Thetford Grammar School near the market town of Brandon in Norfolk. 
Hopkins was a sensitive, intelligent, somewhat withdrawn lad who was having a rough time adjusting to his new environment. The cold, unromantic life of a country boarding school was far from his liking. He was lonely, bored, and dreadfully homesick. In short, he was in a perfect frame of mind to leave him vulnerable to a plunge into the weird. One night, Hopkins had an unusually vivid dream. He found himself in a large, isolated heathland. It was night, and a pale moon shone in a silvery light over the scene. In the distance, he saw what appeared to be a patch of mist moving erratically along the heath's trackways. He soon realized that the mist was really the form of a man, a man that was running and leaping in his direction. As the figure came closer, the moonlight revealed that he had a grotesque, terrifying face of a silver-gray color. The mist man's ragged, dirty clothes were of the previous century, and he was holding a circular wooden plate. Hopkins was filled with horror, but found himself unable to move. He later wrote, My feet seemed fastened to enormous bars of lead. I was terrified, and fear of the thing catching hold of me went nigh to driving me mad, or so it seemed in my dream. The moment came when the man was hovering right over me. I was hypnotized with fear. It was then that I could see my pursuer's face with remarkable distinctness. It was thickened and puckered, giving the face a peculiar, heavily menacing expression. I realized that his intention was to press his face against mine. I knew I could not have borne that. As so often happens in dreams, it was exactly at this crucial moment that Hopkins awoke up. However, the singular hideousness of the nightmare lingered with him throughout the day. Over the next few months, the boy continued to have the same dream. All the details were the same, except that now, he sometimes saw in the background of the heathland a distinctive building, a long, narrow structure with a thatched roof tower. Hopkins had found a friend in Dr. Cat, one of his schoolmasters. Cat was known to be interested in spiritualism, folklore, and other esoteric topics, which emboldened the boy to confide in him the details of these weird and uniquely unsettling dreams. Cat told him that the sinister, mist-like man was a leper, but neither of them could make any more sense out of the dreams. As for the thatched tower, there were many old buildings of that description throughout that part of England, leaving Cat to predict that the meaning, if there was one, behind Hopkins' dreams would likely remain a mystery. A few weeks after this conversation, Cat visited an inn near the school. To his surprise, he saw on a mantelpiece a photograph of an old structure that exactly fit the one Hopkins had described. The landlord told the schoolmaster that the building was Warren House at Brandon Warren, about a mile from Thetford. Some years before, it was badly damaged by a fire, but had been restored. The innkeeper knew nothing more about the place. Dr. Cat brought Hopkins to visit Warren House. The setting mirrored perfectly the scene of Hopkins' dreams. An empty stretch of desolate Warren. Warren House itself was the same gray-looking brick and gray stone tower the boy had pictured so many times. The only sign of life was the tower's caretaker, who expressed his surprise at their visit. Warren House was not among Norfolk's most popular and inviting attractions. Cat told the man that they had an interest in archaeology and old buildings, and they hoped he could tell them something about the tower's history. The caretaker said that about a century before, the tower was a leper house. The remains of the old cemetery for the lepers could still be seen nearby. The top room of the tower was about 700 years old. It still stored the wooden bowls and dishes used by the unfortunates, 
who had been virtually imprisoned there. The caretaker added that he did not live in the tower because his wife was afraid of the place. She insisted that whenever she was inside the building, invisible eyes stared at her. The caretaker himself admitted that he tried to avoid the tower after dark. While he had never seen or heard anything extraordinary, it was a place that simply had an aura of evil. The caretaker permitted his guests to tour the building. The crumbling ancient masonry, the old coffin now used as a chicken trough, and the dank air made a fitting setting for a place with such a ghastly history. The entire atmosphere exuded a foul decay. As the caretaker had said, the upper tower had stacks of wooden dishware. The bowls, he explained, were the begging bowls the lepers held as they stood on the road below, pleading for alms from passerbys. Hopkins picked up one of the bowls and instantly saw that it was a match for the one carried by the man in his dream. When he replaced the bowl, he heard the clink of metal and saw that he had knocked against a bell placed behind the pile of dishes. It was a very old copper bell about six inches tall. When he gently shook it, they were all surprised by how loud it was. The caretaker said it was used when a party of lepers would pass through a town, warning the residents to keep well away until the poor souls had moved on. The caretaker said that some years back a local farmer had taken it to use as a sheep's bell. From that time on, the farmer seemed to be cursed. His livestock sickened and his daughter died of a terrible wasting disease. The man's trouble ceased only when he returned the bell. The caretaker added that some of the area's inhabitants were convinced the tower was haunted. People who passed by Warren House during the night told of hearing the leper's bell ringing and seeing strange blue lights in the tower windows. Visiting the site seemed to free Hopkins from its spell. He never had the nightmare again. However, this was not the last time that Warren House would enter his life. In 1941, Hopkins, by then an author and researcher of the paranormal, revisited the now long-abandoned leper house. He wrote, I passed under the arched doorway of the tower and found myself in a tangle of beams and fallen blocks of stone. Looking up, I found that the floor of the upper chamber was missing and that the building lay shamelessly open to the sky. The thatched roof, which had been a landmark, had evidently been destroyed by fire. However, the shell of the old building remained, and as I looked up at the hoary walls, I paused and wondered who first lived in Warren House. Was the original building a church, a caste, or a lookout tower? No one knows. Determined to find out what he could about the building, Hopkins interviewed one Samuel Bull, who had been the tower's caretaker from 1903 to 1905. Bull recalled that he had been warned not to touch the wooden dishes, so he left them well alone. Although he knew nothing about the tower's history, he had no doubt it was haunted. On one occasion, he was standing on the stone staircase when a ghost rushed down the stairs past him. We met face to face, so to speak, and the ghost could not help but rush at me. It had a flat white face and two burning eyes, and there was a sound like hissing steam. It passed through me, making a filthy gust of hot air. I looked out of a circular window in the stairway and saw the leper's ghost tear out of the archway at the bottom. He went frisking over the warren at a furious speed, and I heard him shouting some kind of heathen gibberish. The night air shook with his devilish voice. Bull said the spectral activity became so unbearable that he bricked up the door to the tower. From that time on, the ghost left him in peace. The ruins of Warren House are still in existence, but it is anyone's guess what became of the begging bulls and bell. 
If you ever see items matching their description in some antique shop or on eBay, it's probably wisest to steer clear of them. You never know. Here's another ghost story. The Bird Bath by Nora Loves. Opening her door for the first time to Mr. Mitson, Mrs. Pryor felt a sense of recoil. He looked like a tramp of the kind not often seen nowadays. He had a very red face, sharp red-rimmed little eyes, and a week's growth of beard. He wore a dirty old army greatcoat made for a bigger man and a hat which had long ago lost its original color and shape. He smelled strongly of beer. Nearby, however, actually in her tiny drive stood a reassuring sight, a white pony, plump and shiny, and with a placid look of a well-treated animal. Attached to the pony was a small cart, bearing in white paint the words, J. Mitson, Dealer. This morning, J. Mitson was dealing in firewood. He touched his hat civilly and said, Morning, lady. I seen you just moved in and I happened on this. He indicated the wood. Just right, I said to myself, for the new lady. Dirt cheap, too. Three bob a basket or fifteen bob the lot. She made her first mistake then by failing to inquire about how many basketfuls the cart contained and by not keeping an eye on him as he unloaded. Mr. Mitson was always careful not to undertake any exertion likely to cause strain, and he went from cart to shed several times with a basket half full. Mrs. Pryor found an apple for the pony, and when Mr. Mitson rattled away with rather more than 50% profit, he was satisfied that he had found a soft touch. Not the man to neglect an opportunity. He sold her, in quick order, a sack of mixed bulbs. A bit late for planting, he agreed, but they'll come up, given time. A length of chestnut fencing, which he reckoned would just fit the gap in her hedge, and it did, as though it had been measured. A bundle of rose bushes, none the worse for being without labels. All scented, which I know ladies like, and a copper cauldron. Minute I seen it, I thought of you, lady. Polished up a bit, couple plants in it, look lovely in your hall. He was persuasive, but never wheedling. All his arguments had a backing of good sense. His approach was jaunty, take it or leave it. I'm doing you a favor. But there was a kind of inevitability about him. She felt that one day, sooner or later, he would talk her into buying something that she didn't need. Something she couldn't afford or positively disliked. She felt that this day had arrived when he arrived with a load of turf, done up and outside Swiss rolls. The people from whom she had bought the little house had five children, and all that remained of the lawn were a few dispirited tufts of coarse grass. I knew you was the sort of lady that wanted lawn, Mr. Mitson said. So the moment I seen this, I said to myself, that'll do her nicely. Well, I don't know, Mrs. Pryor said doubtfully. I had rather thought of having the lawn leveled and seeded. Be a couple of years before you had a lawn worth looking at, and grass seed is very expensive. The white pony, who also knew a soft touch when it met one, gently jingled its brittle. Mrs. Pryor fetched and presented the offering. It's a question of laying it, Mr. Mitson, she said. I don't think I could manage it. 
Mr. Mitson, stroked his chin with its weak growth of beard that never varied. I see, he said. Well, look here. I might. I don't know. But I might find somebody who'd do it for you. If I can, it's a deal. If not, I'll take it along to the cemetery. They're always on the lookout for good turf. In a short time, he was back with two men, one old, one very young, who were prepared to lay her lawn. To them, she happened to say that she wished the lawn to end about six feet from the back of the house, as she hoped one day to have a tiny paved terrace. Halfway through the following week, Mr. Mitson arrived with a load of broken paving stones. The same two men came and made her little terrace. On the whole, she reflected as she looked around, Mr. Mitson had served her well. She had a supply of firewood, the fencing, a lawn, an area of paving, and, in her hall, the copper pot, though larger than the space warranted, glowed brightly and looked well. Out of sight, the bulbs and the rose bushes were, she hoped, getting ready to flower. So why, she wondered, should she always feel a slight apprehension and ask herself, what now, when she heard the white pony's hoofs? She did not hear them in the first ten days of January. Those who knew Mr. Mitson's habits could have told her that he ceased general dealings and most other activities when the thermometer fell below 37 degrees Fahrenheit. When, with the onset of a warmer spell, she heard him, she braced herself to tell him that now she had everything she needed and must spend nothing at all for quite a time. She could not even guess at what lay all alone on the cart's floor, shrouded in sackcloth. It was not very large, but she judged it to be heavy, since Mr. Mitson invited her to step out and take a look, rather than bringing it to the door. It's a beauty, he said. Ever since you put down that bit of paving, I've been on the lookout for you. He whisked off the sacking and revealed a stone column about 18 inches square and three feet long. It lay on its side. It was rather mossy. It was carved. She was rather relieved to see its apparent uselessness. It enabled her to say quite firmly, It is interesting, Mr. Mitson, but I don't want it. It would be of no earthly use to me. He was taken aback at this. Her first piece of sales resistance. What? No use? I thought all ladies liked a nice little bird bath. Mrs. Pryor said, Oh, a bird bath? What did you reckon? I don't know about you, but I think that looked just a job on your bit of paving. Uncommon, too. She now had time to see that where the column ended in a solid plinth, there was a worn hollow about eight inches across and four deep. The thing had not, she felt most certain, been intended to benefit birds, but it would make an admirable and most unusual birdbath. You go and try to buy me, Mr. Mitson, and charge you the earth and lust concrete. This is stone, and only three pound ten. I will have it, she said, and then, Mr. Mitson, I really must stop buying things, however nice or cheap. I intended to spread the expense of making the garden over a year. You'd have spent a lot more in the end. He stepped out onto the road and placing two fingers in his mouth, blew a piercing whistle. The younger of the two men 
who had laid the turf and the pacing, hurried out from the lurking place, and with some purely symbolic assistance from Mr. Mitson, brought the bird bath and set it down upon the spot indicated by Mrs. Pryor on the little paved space opposite the French windows of her sitting room. Settle down a treat, Mr. Mitz had said, taking the money. By the time Mrs. Pryor had discovered that though milder than recent days, this was not really a warm morning and that she had already been unwise to leave the house without a coat, she was shivering quite violently. She also had a feeling of anxiety concerned with being alone with a bad chill or even influenza. She had as yet made no contact in the small town except with those who supplied her needs and Mr. Mitson. She had indeed only one real friend in the whole of England. She had herself been born and had spent much of her life in Africa and had chosen the area because Simon, her late husband, had remembered it with sentimental affection having spent holidays there with an aunt long since dead. Widowed, she had come to England, hoped to find a cheap house in Simon's beloved East Anglia, and had done so. Until this moment, she had not been conscious of loneliness, except in the sense that without Simon, she would always be lonely. Now shivering and feeling vaguely ill, she realized the state of her isolation. She did not even know the name of a doctor. She thought with a terrible pang. I could be ill. I could die. Nobody would notice except the milkman. However, once indoors again and fortified by a cup of tea, the feeling of malaise and of fear wore off. It was simply the cold to which she was unaccustomed. One must not get into a panic over nothing. She had lived through far more perilous situations than being alone and threatened by a chill in a small English town. As she drank her tea, she looked out of the window and took pleasure in the sight of the bird bath, standing sturdily outside the window. It was exactly right, both ornamental and useful. Restored, she took a jug of water and some broken crusts and put on a coat, went out to administer to the birds, she poured the water into the hollow, shared the crust round the rim, and almost immediately was again aware that she felt ill and was absolutely alone. In her mind, a curious phrase took shape, sick unto death and abandoned by all. She had decided against having a telephone for the time being. In her friendless state, it seemed an unwarranted extravagance. If, as she hoped, she made friends, and if again, as she hoped, she found some job within her rather limited capacity, there would be time enough to think about installing a telephone. Now she saw it not as a luxury, but as an absolute necessity. She went indoors and wrote the letters of applications, and on her way to post it, she stopped at a little general shop and asked a woman who usually served her to tell her the name and address of a doctor. The woman provided the information and said, Feeling poorly? Mrs. Pryor was so overcome over this small amount of personal interest that she almost broke into tears. Before she could reply, the woman said, There's a lot of flu about, and she seemed to draw away a little as though anxious not to be infected. Towards the end of the stay in Africa, Mrs. Pryor had become accustomed 
to slights both open and covert, but nothing had hurt her so deeply as this hardly perceptible recoil. Such easily wounded susceptibility she took to be another symptom of an impending cold. She went home, made up the fire, and drew the curtains, and decided that the best thing she could do to take her mind off her misery was to write a few letters. A married couple, close friends who had lately been in the same situation as herself, had opted for South Africa, thinking the English climate too severe. She wrote to them, faintly astonished to find that she was writing gaily about how cozy her tiny house was, about the compensations on the English winter, about the bulbs and the rose trees she had planted, and how much she looked forward to the spring. She wrote in the same vein to two other friends who, having little choice, had decided to stick it out in Talasi. And she wrote to one friend in England, hard-headed, foresighted Ethel Bradford, who years ago had gone to Oxford, taken her degree, got a job as a teacher, and never looked back. She found that with Ethel, her tone changed slightly. Moods were a bit like hats. You wore one for one occasion, another for another, and she had no need to pretend to Ethel, who had said when they met at London, You'll be very lonely, Kathy. To Ethel, she could admit that she was lonely. And yet, the other letter was not false or intended to convey the wrong impression. It was just... She halted her pen and worked the thought out. The friends who had stayed in Talasi and the friends who had gone to South Africa had enough troubles of their own. They needed cheerful letters. Ethel's response to her admission of loneliness would be a healthy, if faintly, smug reflection. I was right. Her feeling of isolation and impending illness waned. As she wrote, but as a precaution she took aspirin and a hot black currant drink upon retiring. When she woke, she felt perfectly well. Ethel's response to her letter was unexpected. A telegram. If agreeable, proposed visit, Friday to Monday, arrive 11.30 a.m. The idea of having company for a long weekend was exhilarating the extreme. She laid in a modest stock of special fare and brought a second hot water bottle. From time to time, she felt unwell, but the expected cold never developed and she hoped that it would not do so during the visit and thus ruin it. Ethel brought her brisk, kindly, slightly astringent headmistress manner with her. Nobody is likely to knock on your door, Kathy and ask if you are lonely. You must join something. The Townsmen's Guild, the Business and Professional Women's Club. They accept housewives nowadays. In a town even as small as this, there must be some cultural activities, an art society or something to do with music. Ethel would have been a member of five groups within a month and president within a year. I know, Mrs. Pryor said meekly. I thought I'd leave it until I was settled in. She was of a very retiring disposition and rather dreaded the business. Also, she was not quite certain how one set about joining things. The local librarian is in a position to be helpful, Ethel said. Librarians are minds of information. After an interval, Ethel tackled the problem of finding some useful and remunerative employment for her friend. I've given the matter some thought, she said. You're absolutely 
unqualified. That's the trouble. But that is easily remedied nowadays. Naturally, I thought of teaching in an understaffed profession. And I'm practically certain you'd find something if you wrote to the director of education and said you were willing to take an unqualified post. For you, I thought, domestic science and would take a crash course in the holidays. Am I not a little old to start training? Good gracious, no. As a college of further education in which I was interested, 50% of the students are over 30. Mrs. Pryor's plans for finding some job to eke out her very limited means had been much more humble, much less brisk, but she did not say so. By this time they had finished tea, Mrs. Pryor refused help in the washing of cups. No, no, Ethel, this is your holiday. Ethel sat down to complete the Times crossword puzzle. The kitchen window also overlooked the paved area, and the light from it mingling with the last daylight revealed to Mrs. Pryor one last late roosting bird on the bird bath. The syrup she had put out after lunch had vanished immediately, and the water bowl was empty again because birds were feckless. They bathed no matter how cold the air they splashed, they wasted. She felt sorry for this late loan-comer, so she filled a jug and took up the crust she had cut from the tea-time sandwiches. Standing by the birdbath, she knew that her fear had become reality. The illness she had threatened struck suddenly. A fit of shivering, the worst she had yet known, came upon her, rattling her teeth. She was so weak and dizzy that to prevent herself from falling, she had to clutch at the solid stone and clinging, sagging. She felt, despite Ethel's proximity, utterly alone, sick unto death and abandoned by all. Ethel, she knew, would desert her, recoil as the woman in the shop had done at the latest hint of infection. Ethel had, on Tuesday, a very important conference to attend. Ethel could not afford to take chances with her health, and why should she? Nevertheless, feeling her fingers weak and knowing that she was about to fall, she cried, Ethel, help me! Inside the sitting room, the curtain slid back, the French window opened, and Ethel came out hastily. Kathy, what is... Strong arms held her, heaved her, brought her into the sitting room, put her on a chair, and pushed her head down onto her knees. Ethel's reliable, unruffled voice said, You're all right. Concentrate on taking some deep breaths. There. Better now? Better, Mrs. Pryor said, raising her head. That is the puzzling thing. That was just the worst yet, but I've had little spells before. I just feel terribly ill, deserted by God and man, and then I'm all right. Have you consulted a doctor, Ethel asked? No. It has only happened lately. I just feel as ill as possible for a second or two, and then, to be honest, I quite forget about it. You must see a doctor tomorrow. He was a young man with a hurried manner, but he took the time over her, giving her much the same examination as he would have done had he been examining her for an insurance company. Heart, lungs, blood pressure, reflexes. He said that as far as he could tell, by such a cursory examination, she seemed in good health. He said that if the attacks continued, they must go into the matter more thoroughly. They went to have coffee at a cafe, 
which Mrs. Pryor had visited once and could assure Ethel was a nice place. There was a vacant table for which Mrs. Pryor would have made, but Ethel said, Wait! She ran an unerring eye over the occupied tables. Those that were set for four and occupied by two chose her query and moved in. Within two minutes' conversation was general and animated. Presently, she mentioned her own name, adding that she was just a visitor. She mentioned Mrs. Pryor's name. She has come to live here because of a family tie. This led to explanations and where the woman said, I never knew Miss Pryor, but my mother was very fond of her. In fact, she left my mother a work table and a set of prints. I have them now. You must come and see them, Mrs. Pryor. You see, Ethel said afterwards meaningfully, you would have gone to the empty table and spoken to no one. Now you have an invitation to tea next Thursday, and that should lead on. You're wonderful, Ethel. I always thought so. It was true she had always admired Ethel, who had been outstanding even in school, perfect, then head girl. They drifted into reminiscent talk about the school days they had shared rushing away the faint nostalgia laughing almost girlishly over remembered pranks the eccentricities of those who had taught them ethel helped with the clearing up after lunch and she carried the meal's debris out to the object which was both bird bath and bird table coming back with the emptied plate in her hand she said you know kathy a thought just struck me we laugh even now about miss patterson's hair coming down in that hockey match. I suppose some of my girls find me equally comic in a quarter of a century from now. Really, what a sobering thought. Mrs. Pryor said, Ethel, what a thought for you of all people. Miss Patterson, with her hair up or down, was comic. Claiming descent from King Arthur and all that nonsense? On this afternoon, Ethel volunteered to make tea. I've never had time to become fully domesticated, she said, but at least I can make a cup of tea. She looked at Mrs. Pryor, who was mixing the stuffing for the next day's roached chicken, and said, You should have a kitchen stool, you know. Many jobs can be done just as well sitting down. Oh, I'm all right, Mrs. Pryor said, mixing vigorously. As a matter of fact, as far as I can remember... I've never had a silly turn because of any exertion. A chance not to be missed by Miss Bradford. She said, Kathy, you know, I have been wondering, and what you have just said confirms my thoughts. It may be psychosomatic, being alone, not having enough to occupy you. That tea cake is blazing, Mrs. Pryor said. They had bought tea cakes at the nice place. Extinguishing the flame, Miss Bradford said. That shows what comes of trying to do two things at once, she added. I'm sorry, Kathy. I'm afraid it's ruined. It will do for the birds, Mrs. Pryor said. Following her habit of never deferring to the next moment the thing to be done in this, Miss Bradford cumbled the ruined tea cake and took it out. She did not return immediately. The kettle boiled. Mrs. Pryor abandoned the stuffing and made the tea. It took only a second or two, but in carrying the pot to the kettle, she came level with the window and saw Ethel standing by the bird bath, halted in the gesture of brushing black crumbs from her fingers. 
and it struck her suddenly that Ethel looked old. That had not been her impression when they met in London or yesterday, but now, well, there it was. Ethel looked old, far older than her age, which was a year and a half more than Mrs. Pryor's. And the strange thing was that, coming back into the kitchen, Ethel having said, So, after all you had to make the tea, dear me, I seem not to have made a very good job of it. She also said, Kathy, I was just looking round and thinking that when the time comes for me to retire, I should like a little place like this. Nobody can work forever. I seldom look ahead in that particular way, but the thought did strike me. Try as one may to keep up with new ideas, there is a limit. Even the most successful career must end. She spoke rather like a child, suddenly confronted with the fact that two and two make four. Life itself must end, said Mrs. Pryor, who faced this fact with a somewhat similar surprise when her husband died. Ethel said, That is true, then added. That is a morbid way of thinking. If one thought about the final end of all human effort, no effort would be made. And then where should we be? They drank their tea, ate the unburned tea cakes, and were soon deeply engaged with the puzzles, the testing of weights of general knowledge, which is a thoughtfully considerate paper, had provided for readers in need of some diversion over the weekend. Next day, the birds in Mrs. Pryor's garden ate well and washed vigorously in the bowl, three times replenished, once scraping the rather sticky remains of the chocolate pudding on the flat surface that ringed the bowl, Mrs. Pryor again felt unwell, but this time, instead of remaining out in the cold and clutching at the chilly stone, she staggered back into the kitchen and leaned on the draining board until she recovered, which she soon did. She said nothing to Ethel, for she had already conducted some searching inquiries as to what Kathy ate when she was alone. The mysterious spells, if not entirely imaginary, might be due to lack of calories or vitamins. Mrs. Pryor loved and deeply admired Ethel, but she could at times be rather overwhelming. Monday was clear and bright, though cool. Mrs. Pryor was busy converting what remained of the chicken into a toothsome dish, but Ethel was at a loss what to do. Presently, she said, From what I can see of that bird bath, Kathy, it is rather finely carved. Would you mind if I removed the moss? and took a closer look, I should be glad. I've been meaning to do it myself. She gave Ethel a short, sturdy vegetable knife, pointed in a way that facilitated the removal of ice from potatoes. Now and again, as she made the pastry and the sauce for the chicken, while advanced, she glanced out to see how Ethel was getting on. As usual, well, the green moss fell away, like the rind of a fruit, the point of the knife pecking away cleared the soil-filled interstices. Moment by moment, more of the carving became visible. Mrs. Pryor turned away and stooped to light her oven. When next she looked out from the kitchen window, Ethel, the job finished, had gone. Upstairs, Mrs. Pryor imagined to wash her hands. The oven heated, Mrs. Pryor placed the volovent cases in the correct position and adjusted the regulator. Then she went to the bottom of the stairs and called, Ethel, sherry time. There was no answer. In fact, the silence hung heavy. 
almost as though she were alone in the house. Then, close behind her, the front door opened, letting in a flow of cold air and slammed. And there was Ethel. I just ran out to make a telephone call, she said. I changed my mind about something rather important. Come and have some sherry, Mrs. Pryor said. They were both just old enough to adhere to the now discredited custom of saying something, even if it were only cheerio, before drinking, Ethel said. Happy days, Kathy, and Mrs. Pryor said. Happy days, Ethel, and a nice conference. I'm not going. That was why I had to telephone in such a hurry. I had to let Mr. Fielding know. She drank her sherry and allowed her glass to be refilled. Then she said, Kathy, do you know what your bird bath is? You mean what it was originally? No, I somehow never thought that it was intended for birds. What is it, Ethel? I can't be sure, of course, not being an expert, but I should say that it was the lower half of a marker or boundary cross. The carving is definitely of a religious nature. Such crosses were common at one time. Some vanished at the Reformation, others in Cromwellian times. The crosses were relatively fragile. The plinths is heavy, so they were left in place and even served a certain purpose, either as a place where charitably-minded people could leave food for lepers. Oh, no! Mrs. Pryor exclaimed in the way people do when accepting a hard truth. I'm sorry, Kathy, Ethel said, remembering after all those years how Kathy could never bear the sight of a bruise or a hacked shin after a hockey game. But you must admit it is interesting and most unusual to find such a relic in a private garden. Sick unto death and abandoned by all. Mrs. Pryor remembered the odd phrase, and the feeling of being ill all over, of facing death in complete isolation. She had felt it first by the birdbath, and now that she came to think about it, each subsequent time, there and only there. She had known just for a few seconds, through something more subtle than imagination, what it meant to be stricken, doomed, and outcast. The misery had impregnated the stone, and the stone had given it back. She sat silent and stunned, concentrating upon preserving her composure, lest Ethel should guess. Ethel would think she was mad. Ethel said, nodding towards the birdbath, where Blackbird was wasting water. Doing that little job cleared my mind. The carving, you really must look at it, Kathy. It's so exquisite, so detailed. On the father's side, the feeding of the 5,000, and you can see the scales on the fish. I scratched away and I thought, all that dedicated work, and to end as a birdbath. I saw the analogy. I have always done the donkey work for the EPMS, and Mr. Fielding has always taken the credit. He sounded quite shattered just now when I told him I was not mean to attend. She lifted her glass and drank to Sherry as though it were the blood of an enemy. Mrs. Pryor thought with horror, yes. With me, physical weakness and feeling lonely, my vulnerable point with her, a different approach, a leeching away of confidence and ambition, because some of those who came in the night walking on maimed feet, groping with maimed hands, ambitious ones, careers cut suddenly short, she said, 
completely reversing their roles. Ethel, I think you were hasty. I'm afraid you will regret such an impulsive action. I know from your letters what she would have liked to give the organization its full pompous name, but she could only remember educational projects. What EPMS means to you. I'm so afraid that you just because you remove that moss. She checked herself. Really, Kathy, Miss Bradford said. The moss had nothing to do with it. The carving, yes, that had a cataclytic effect up to a point, but I was not hasty or impulsive. I had been mediating drastic action for a long time. Mr. Fielding knows what to do if he wishes assistance from me in future. Mr. Fielding knew, and he acted. The telegram arrived soon after lunch. Exactly what I expected, Ethel said, looking pleased. You will be going, after all? Yes, and I shall take the chair. Mr. Fielding has developed a sudden cold in his feet, Ethel said incisively. She spent the rest of her visit exhorting Kathy a sermon with many headings. She was to eat at least one full meal a day, return to the doctor if the little turns persisted, make the most of her invitation to tea, cultivating the friendship of her hostess and anyone else who might be there. She was to get in touch with the educational committee. To this, Mrs. Pryor added another thing to be done. She must get Mr. Mitson to remove that haunted stone. She would pay him to whistle up his accomplice and take it away. Well into February, she waited, eager now to hear the rattle of the white pony's hoofs. It did not come. Mr. Mitson had done a little general dealing in copper wire, the property of the electricity board, and in view of his many previous convictions, the magistrates had, as they said, no alternative. What scraps she now had to offer the birds, Mrs. Pryor placed on the kitchen windowsill. Rain and sometimes snow replenished the little hollow. Very gradually, but with patient persistence, the moss reformed over the carvings.